Hello, friends. Sam Bennett here with a little tune I wrote about a U.S. presidential candidate. Hope you'll give it a listen. Here we go. There's a fellow from up in Vermont. He wants to be the U.S. president. He's speaking so much truth, you can hardly believe that this is a man who works in government. He's telling it plain and simple about how we got to end this corporate rule. And if you stand against what this man is saying, you're either super rich or you're a fool. He's a fighter, don't you know? Not your average political. He ain't happy with the status quo. Go, burn it, go. Go, burn it, go. Education. He wants to end military adventurism and focus on fixing the nation. A fair shake for the working man and woman and start taxing the rich like we should. Stop selling our government to the highest bidder and start working for the common good. He ain't no tool of no CEO, no errand boy. Santo, no Wall Street banker's friend, he's their foe. Go, burn it, go, go, burn it, go, go, burn it, go. The only man or woman on the campaign trail to talk plain about racial injustice. Disproportionate numbers of blacks in prison And how we're way overdue to discuss this He says when anyone dies in police custody It must be thoroughly investigated His positions on these crucial issues Have been clearly and repeatedly stated He knows that progress has been too slow In the fight against the new Jim Crow Afraid of the racist? Oh hell no! Go, Bernie, go! Go, Bernie, go! Go, Bernie, go! And that was Go, Bernie, Go by Sam Bennett, which you can find on YouTube. That is Sam with two M's. Greetings and welcome to Bernie 2020. This is an independent podcast on progressive politics inspired by Bernie Sanders, Our Revolution, Progressive and Radical Activism, and the Green Party. This podcast is completely independent of any candidate, party, PAC, or political organization. This is the first episode of Bernie 2020. It is also episode number 51. That's because this is an evolution. This is a podcast evolution for the political revolution. If you've been with me, in the past and listen to Bernie 2016, you will find more of the same here, but a a bit of a broader perspective with the campaign over. It is time to evolve into political activism 
and the everyday battles without the distraction of the presidential campaign to uh, add to and detract from our regular fights. So what does it take to be revolutionary in 2017 and beyond? I think of four four things that can can help us guide us and be revolutionary. And that is to listen, think, speak, and act. We need to listen to all voices. We need to hear what people outside of our own experience have to say. And we need to learn from that. So listening is really, really important. We need to think. We need to think critically about our own values and our culture and our community and not just accept things as they are or accept uh, what others have to say at face value without being introspective and without uh, digging deeper and thinking critically about our social structures. Well, then we need to speak out about the things that we oppose, which I think we do relatively well, um, but also I think where we're more lacking is speaking out about the things we support, speaking out in favor of uh, change, in favor of new structures. And we need to find a balance in speaking out and opposing those things that are broken and also building those things that we need to replace that. And then that brings us to act. Act in your community. Meet with your neighbors and create something. And we need to build the world we want to live in. No one else is going to do it for us. A politician's not going to do it for us. A corporate uh, corporation or leaders of a corporation are not going to do it for us. We need to build those structures ourselves. And this is just a tiny little piece of that puzzle. And if you want to reach out to me, you can send me a message at BernieUS2020 at gmail.com. New email address for Bernie2020. You can follow me on Twitter also at the new Twitter handle, BernieUS2020. And you can find out more about Bernie2020 at Bernie-2020.com. If you want to support this podcast going forward, you can support this podcast on Patreon. It's at patreon.com slash unrelated things, which is my uh, a broader um, entity that I use to do various different and unrelated things. So let's get started with Bernie 2020. So coming out of the presidential election, there's a lot of hand-wringing and gnashing of teeth and complaining about the Russian or the possible Russian uh, influence or meddling or hacking or what have you, however various people want to describe it, of our election. And I think that while it's no, no country should influence another country's electoral process outside of perhaps monitoring things 
and trying to assess whether things are handled in a fair manner. I don't think there's any role for one government to influence, to disrupt, to alter, to try to guide the election process in another country. And while many are hand-wringing and complaining about Russia interfering with our election in 2016, I think too many people don't know and understand what our history is in the United States. So this first piece and also the second piece will cover a bit of that. And this first piece is from the WashingtonPost.com. It is by Ishan Tharoor, that's I-S-H-A-A-N-T-H-A-R-O-O-R, and it's titled The Long History of the U.S. Interfering with Elections Elsewhere. One of the more alarming narratives of the 2016 U.S. election campaign is that of the Kremlin's apparent meddling. Last week, the United States formally accused the Russian government of stealing and disclosing emails from the Democratic National Committee and the individual accounts of prominent Washington insiders. The hacks, in part leaked by WikiLeaks, have led to loud declarations that Moscow is eager for the victory of Republican nominee Donald Trump, whose rhetoric has unsettled Washington's traditional European allies and even thrown the future of NATO, Russia's bete noir, into doubt. Leading Russian officials have balked at the Obama administration's claim. In an interview with CNN on Wednesday, Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov dismissed the suggestion of interference as, quote, ridiculous, though he said it was flattering that Washington would point the finger at Moscow. At a time of pronounced regional tensions in the Middle East and elsewhere, there's no love lost between Kremlin officials and their American counterparts. To be sure, there's a much larger context behind today's bluster. As my colleague Andrew Roth notes, whatever their government's alleged actions in 2016, Russia's leaders enjoy casting aspersions on the American democratic process. And in recent years, they have also bristled at perceived U.S. meddling in the politics of countries on Russia's borders, most notably in Ukraine. While the days of its worst behavior are long behind it, I'm not sure that it's very long behind us, to be honest. The United States does have a well-documented history of interfering and sometimes interrupting the workings of democracies elsewhere. It has occupied and intervened militarily in a whole swath of countries in the Caribbean and Latin America and fomented coups against democratically elected populists. The most infamous episodes include the ousting of Iranian Prime Minister Mohammad Mosaddegh in 1953, whose government was replaced by an authoritarian monarchy favorable to Washington. The removal and assassination of Congolese leader Patrice Lumumba in 1961 and the violent toppling of socialist Chilean President Salvador Allende, whose government was swept aside in 1973 by a military coup led by the ruthless General Augusto Pinochet. For decades, these actions were considered imperatives of the Cold War, part of a global struggle against the Soviet Union 
and its supposed leftist proxies. Its key participants included scheming diplomats like John Foster Dulles and Henry Kissinger. Remember when Hillary in the debate said that Henry Kissinger was her mentor? That's what scared a lot of us, or it's part of what scared a lot of us on the left about a potential Clinton presidency. Henry Kissinger, who advocated aggressive covert policies to stanch the supposedly expanding threat of communism. Sometimes that agenda also explicitly converged with the interests of U.S. business. In 1954, Washington unseated Guatemala's left-wing president, Jacobo Arbenz, who had the temerity to challenge the vast control of the United Fruit Company, a U.S. corporation with agrarian laws that would be fairer to Guatemalan farmers. The CIA went on to install and back a series of right-wing dictatorships that brutalized the impoverished nation for almost half a century. A young Che Guevara, who happened to be traveling through Guatemala in 1954, was deeply affected by Arbenz's overthrow. He later wrote to his mother that the events prompted him to leave, quote, the path of reason, and would ground his conviction in the need for radical revolution over gradual political reform. Aside from its instigation of coups and alliances with right-wing juntas, Washington sought to more subtly influence elections in all corners of the world, and so did Moscow. Political scientist Don Levin calculates that the two powers intervened in 117 elections around the world from 1946 to 2000 an average of once in every nine competitive elections. And lest you think we stopped in 2000, we have done the same in Honduras and in Venezuela. Remember that coup in Venezuela, that short-lived coup that we supported before uh, Chavez um, maintained his grip on power? I think that some of the state of Venezuela's crisis today can be laid at are interfering with the governing structure in that country, but certainly not all of it. They, they certainly have their own embedded issues in their economy. In the late 1940s, the newly established CIA cut its teeth in Western Europe, pushing back against some of the continent's most influential leftist parties and labor unions. In 1948, the United States propped up Italy's centrist Christian Democrats and helped ensure their electoral victory against a leftist coalition anchored by one of the most powerful communist parties in Europe. CIA operatives gave millions of dollars to their Italian allies and helped orchestrate what was then an unprecedented clandestine propaganda campaign. This included forging documents to besmirch communist leaders via fabricated sex scandals, starting a mass letter-writing campaign from Italian-Americans to their compatriots, and spreading hysteria about a Russian takeover and the undermining of the Catholic Church. Quote, We had bags of money 
that we deliver to selected politicians to defray their political expenses, their campaign expenses for posters, for pamphlets, recounted F. Mark Wyatt, the CIA officer who handled the mission and later participated in more than two and a half decades of direct support to the Christian Democrats. This template spread everywhere. CIA operative Edward G. Lansdale, notorious for his efforts to bring down the North Vietnamese government, is said to have run the successful 1953 campaign of Philippines President Ramon Magsaysay. Japan's center-right liberal Democratic Party was backed with secret American funds through the 1950s and the 1960s. The U.S. government and American oil corporations helped Christian parties in Lebanon win crucial elections in 1957 with briefcases full of cash. In Chile, the United States prevented Allende from winning an election in 1964. Quote, a total of nearly $4 million was spent on some 15 covert action projects, ranging from organizing slum dwellers to passing funds to political parties, detailed a Senate inquiry in the mid-1970s. When it couldn't defeat Allende at the ballot box in 1970, Washington decided to remove him anyway. Quote, I don't see why we need to stand by and watch a country go communist due to the irresponsibility of its own people, Kissinger is said to have quoted, sorry, said to have quipped. Pinochet's regime presided over years of torture, disappearances, and targeted assassinations. And that is the same thing that happened in Iran with the Shah. The Shah's government was brutal against its people. After the end of the Cold War, the United States has largely brought its covert actions into the open with organizations like the more benign National Endowment for Democracy, which seeks to bolster civil society and democratic institutions around the world through grants and other assistance. Still, U.S. critics see the American hand in a range of more recent elections from Honduras to Venezuela to Ukraine. And don't forget, you know, our invasions of Grenada and Panama and our supporting the ouster of Aristide in Haiti, um, we have a, 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 a brutal and widespread and consistent history of meddling in the governing in the elections of other countries around the world. So when we hear people speak about Russia interfering with our elections, their, what's claimed to be their interference, while any interference is not acceptable, their level of interference as far as the allegations go seems extraordinarily minor, in my opinion. They hacked some emails and released them, they didn't invent, they didn't, they didn't create, they didn't uh, forge documents and make it appear that political operatives in the U.S. were thinking and saying things behind 
closed doors, so to speak, that were vastly different than what they were thinking and saying in public. They released actual factual documents that certainly weren't intended to be released, certainly are not acceptable, but as far as interfering in a foreign country's electoral and governing process, it's, it's close to insignificant. And this piece from commondreams.org on the same topic, this piece is by Peter Serto, C-E-R-T-O, and it's called Foreign Meddling in Our Vote. Remember how this feels. Even in an election year as shot through with conspiracy theories as this one, it would have been hard to imagine a bigger bombshell than Russia intervening to help Donald Trump. But that's exactly what the CIA believes happened, or so unnamed, quote, officials brief on the matter, told the Washington Post. While Russia had long been blamed for hacking email accounts linked to the Clinton campaign, its motives had been shrouded in mystery. According to the Post, though, CIA officials recently presented Congress with, quote, a growing body of intelligence from multiple sources that, quote, electing Trump was Russia's goal. Now, the CIA hasn't made any of its evidence public, and the CIA and FBI are reportedly divided on the subject. Though it's too soon to draw conclusions, the charges warrant a serious public investigation. And let's not forget, this isn't part of the story, but let's not forget the CIA, one of the CIA's main tactics is to lie and invent things. They're, they're liars. That's, it's what they do. It's how they disrupt. So taking anything they say at face value without evidence is absurd. Even some Republicans who back Trump seem to agree. Quote, the Russians are not our friends, said Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, announcing his support for a congressional probe. It's warfare, added Senator John McCain. There's a grim irony to this. The CIA is accusing Russia of interfering in our free and fair elections to install a right-wing candidate it deemed more favorable to its interests. Yet during the Cold War, that is exactly what the CIA did to the rest of the world. Most Americans probably don't know that history, but in much of the world, it's a crucial part of how Washington is viewed even today. In the post-World War II years, as Moscow and Washington jockeyed for global influence, the two capitals tried to game every foreign election they could get their hands on. From Europe to Vietnam and Chile to the Philippines, American agents delivered briefcases of cash to hand-picked politicians, launched smear campaigns against their left-leaning rivals, and spread hysterical, quote, fake news stories, like the ones some now accuse Russia of spreading here. And fake news has become a big topic in the media. News stories that aren't based on facts, aren't based on reality, but are just presented for the public to consume. And like I said, the CIA has been a giant source of fake news intended to influence people and influence elections 
around the world uh, in our history and continues to today. In Iran, when elected leader Mohammad Mosaddegh tried to nationalize the country's BP-held oil reserves, CIA agent Kermit Roosevelt led an operation to oust Mosaddegh in favor of Shah Mohammad Reza Pahlavi. The Shah's secret police tortured dissidents by the thousands, leading directly to the Islamic Revolution in 1979. If you want to understand why U.S.-Iranian relations have been so horrendous in our modern era, you just need to go back to the time when we overthrew their democratically elected leader and installed someone supportive of us and our goals who was a brutal dictator it's our history. If You can be the most brutal dictator in the world as long as you serve our interests. And in, in this sense, our interests generally means corporate interests, then you're good to go. Do what you do. Steal from the people. Murder the people. It's fine as long as you don't cross us. But as soon as you cross us, as soon as you don't toe the line, as Saddam Hussein, after much U.S. support, found out, then you're done for, you're out, and we will destroy you and your government, and unfortunately, with no plan to, for, for any kind of continuity, we will, after your brutal dictatorship against your people, we will create a vacuum and allow new brutal dictators, or chaos to come in. In Guatemala, when the democratically elected Jacobo Arbenz tried to loosen the U.S.-based United Fruit Company's grip on Guatemalan land, the CIA backed a coup against him. In the decades of civil war that followed, U.S.-backed security forces were accused of carrying out a genocide against indigenous Guatemalans. And we see that now again in Honduras, and of course, we had the uh, Contra Wars in Nicaragua, supported by Reagan, trying to oust the Sandinistas, who did come to power via overthrowing the government, the prior government there, but then who stood in elections and won overwhelmingly in those elections. And we funded proxy army, the Contras, against Daniel Ortega and the Sandinistas in Nicaragua for years. I don't raise any of this history to excuse Russia's alleged meddling in our election, which, if true, is outrageous, only to suggest that now, maybe, we know how it feels. We should remember that feeling as Trump who's spoken fondly of authoritarian rulers from Russia to Egypt, to the Philippines and beyond, comes into office. And, and I'll just have to disagree with the author when we say, you know, now we know, now maybe we know how it feels. We don't remotely know how it feels to be on the end 
of a government that murders and tortures its people that's supported by foreign powers. And we may never, and hopefully we never do, and hopefully the rest of the countries in the world also feel this less and less going forward. So one of the ways that we can try to determine the extent of potential Russian or other interference in our elections is through validation of our election results. And Jill Stein has made some attempts at doing so, limited attempts in just a few places. Um, And those recount efforts have wrapped up at this point. Deadlines have passed. The Electoral College has voted. And Donald Trump is our president, officially our president-elect. Just a quick side note on the Electoral College. There was... uh, a not insignificant number of people who were hopeful that electors would go against their mandate, and that mandate's a little different in every state. Um, The requirements for the behavior of electors varies a bit from state to state based on state laws. But there were not an insignificant number of people that were hopeful that enough Donald Trump electors would not vote for Donald Trump. And perhaps democracy could be saved via the process that is put into place to interfere with democracy. Their hopes were, their hopes came to naught. There were a few electors, about six or so, that did not vote for the individual they were pledged to. But four of those six were pledged to Hillary Clinton and did not vote for her. And two of those were pledged to Donald Trump and did not vote for him. Not remotely enough to make any impact on the final results. So Jill Stein's recounts are done. They're over. Um, The recount in Wisconsin was completed. And there's a a small amount of information coming out of that. The recounts in Michigan and in Pennsylvania were halted by the courts. Michigan initially was going forward. Some recounts were completed. Some precinct counts were completed. A not insignificant number of issues were found. Nothing raising to the level that would put the results into doubt but certainly a number of issues raised to open up the investigation into why things weren't handled properly in many cases. Um, And in Pennsylvania, the recounts never really got off the ground due to court challenges that uh, Jill Stein did not win. One of the big challenges 
and I think one of the big learnings coming out of Pennsylvania is where they do have electronic voting, it's with machines that don't create any kind of paper trail whatsoever. So the only validation that you can make to as part of a recount is to really go back and ask the machine to repeat its answer that it already gave. See if there's any discrepancy there. Uh, here's a short piece from TheVerge.com. This is by Russell Brandom. It is called Jill Stein's Recount Push Ends with Minimal Change in Wisconsin Vote Count. Just two weeks after it was launched, Jill Stein's push for a recount of the presidential vote in three states has come to an anticlimactic end, according to the Associated Press. An official recount in Wisconsin bankrolled by Stein's fundraising found no evidence of hacking or other irregularities and altered vote totals by only a fraction of a percent. The final results saw Trump's lead grow by 162 votes, with fewer than 1,800 votes changing out of a total of 3 million ballots cast. The result is well within expected margins of error. The Wisconsin results come on the heels of court rulings in Michigan and Pennsylvania that denied Stein's other requests for a recount. Both states were drawing close to their Electoral College reporting deadline, and missing the deadline could result in invalidating the state's electoral votes. Despite Stein's concerns, no evidence has surfaced indicating any direct attack on voting infrastructure. And I'll have to add to that that the recounts, the structure of the recounts, the rules of the recounts pretty nearly prevent any kind of determination of that type from being made because you're recounting ballots in the recount and you're not assessing code in the machines of the recount or reviewing calibration of the machines in the recount. Generally, those are not part of the recount process. So anything that could have potentially happened in those machines was not investigated. So the fact that no evidence has surfaced could be, and I don't want to feed conspiracies here. I think it's very unlikely that machines were hacked. I think it's more likely that machines were miscalibrated or had coding errors in them that could have had an impact. I'm not sure any of that, if, if even present, would have a big enough impact that it would make a difference in the final results. But I think those are all questions that still remain open because of the nature of how recounts are allowed to proceed. So that is the result of the recounts. Um, more questions. Jill Stein is asking the Attorney General to do further investigations, including investigations of the process involved in the Electoral College. I think all of that is useful. I think burying ourselves in that is a bigger distraction than the benefit that may come out of it. I think it's important to go on, but I think it's not important for us to 
invest all of our time in. So uh, next piece is from commondreams.org. It is by Deirdre Fulton. It is called Senate Republicans Block Sanders-Backed, quote, Trump proposal on drugs. And this is on the medication kind of drugs, not on the recreational kind of drugs. Senate Republicans on Tuesday blocked a Bernie Sanders-backed amendment aimed at lowering prescription drug prices and allowing for the import of low-cost medicines from other countries. Sanders sought to attach the proposal to the controversial 21st Century Cures Act, which is ostensibly geared towards fueling medical innovation. Both Sanders and Elizabeth Warren have decried the legislation poised to pass the Senate as a big pharma giveaway. And that legislation did pass the Senate and the House and was signed by President Obama. Like most legislation, it had some positive elements in it, but also had some negative pieces. In a statement, Sanders described his amendment as a, quote, Trump proposal, noting that the president-elect advocated for its major components on the campaign trail. The senator from Vermont said, quote, during his run for the White House, Trump called for requiring Medicare to negotiate with drug companies to lower prices. In a speech in New Hampshire last February 7, Trump criticized current U.S. law that forbids Medicare from negotiating prices with pharmaceutical companies. Trump said, we are not allowed to negotiate drug prices. Can you believe it? We pay about $300 billion more than we are supposed to, than if we negotiated the price. So there's $300 billion on day one we solve. Trump's campaign platform also advocated making it legal to re-import cheaper drugs from other countries. As such, he declared on the Senate floor Tuesday, quote, I am quite confident that all of my Republican colleagues will support an amendment in my hands that will do exactly what Trump said he would accomplish as president. However, The Hill reported, Senator Roy Blunt, a member of the GOP leadership, blocked the former Democratic presidential candidate's move arguing it would threaten the passage of the medical cures legislation. Quote, the sure way for this bill not to pass in this Congress is to do something that changes the subject, he said. In turn, Sanders said he could not support the legislation. Quote, it's incomprehensible to me that we have a major bill dealing with prescription drugs, and yet we are running from the most important issue, and that is the greed of the pharmaceutical industry, Sanders said. The prescription drug industry, along with Wall Street, is the most powerful political force in America. I have been fighting the greed of the prescription drug industry for decades. And, as far as I can tell, the prescription drug industry always wins. But the American people lose. Indeed, in Congress, the American people often lose. But when we stand up and fight, and when we stand up for what is right, and we come together, as Bernie says, there's nothing we cannot accomplish. So while we lose in the Congress, there are other battles that we win 
or maybe at least we win a battle even though the larger war goes on. So since my last episode, some significant events have happened via the uh, Dakota Access Pipeline. And I definitely want to provide those updates here. So this first piece is from the NewYorkTimes.com. It is called Federal Officials to Explore Different Route for Dakota Pipeline. And there is no byline here at the top. Federal officials announced on Sunday that they would not approve permits for the construction of the Dakota Access Pipeline beneath a dammed section of the Missouri River that tribes say sits near sacral burial sites. The decision is a victory for hundreds, perhaps thousands, of protesters camped near the construction site who have opposed the project because they said it would threaten a water source and cultural sites. Federal officials had given the protesters until tomorrow to leave a campsite near the construction site. In a statement on Sunday, the Department of the Army's Assistant Secretary for Civil Works, Joe Ellen Darcy, said that the decision was based on a need to explore alternate routes for the pipeline crossing. Although we've had continuing discussion and exchanges of new information with the Standing Rock Sioux and Dakota Access, it's clear that there's more work to do Ms. Darcy said. The best way to complete that work responsibly and expeditiously is to explore alternate routes for the pipeline crossing. The consideration of alternate routes, quote, would be best accomplished through an environmental impact statement with full public input and analysis, Ms. Darcy said in a statement. So that does put a pause on the construction of the Dakota Access Pipeline. The pipeline company is still pushing hard to continue along its planned route. There is a probability that a new administration could change course and grant the permit needed to keep the pipeline on its current course. That remains to be seen. And so while this is a fantastic step in stopping the Dakota Access Pipeline, at least stopping it on its current route, it certainly is not an end to the process. And here's some more feedback or comments on the decision made by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. This piece is from StandWithStandingRock.net. And it is more of a press release than an, than an article. So there's no specific author here. It, does, it is titled Standing Rock Sioux Tribe's Statement on U.S. Army Corps of Engineers' Decision to Not Grant Easement. 
The Department of the Army will not approve an easement that will allow the proposed Dakota Access Pipeline to cross under Lake Oahe. The following statement was released by Standing Rock Sioux Tribal Chairman Dave Archambault II. Quote, Today, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers announced that it will not be granting the easement to cross Lake Oahe for the proposed Dakota Access Pipeline. Instead, the Corps will be undertaking an environmental impact statement to look at possible alternative routes. We wholeheartedly support the decision of the administration and commend with the utmost gratitude the courage it took on the part of President Obama, the Army Corps, the Department of Justice, and the Department of the Interior to take steps to correct the course of history and do the right thing. The Standing Rock Sioux Tribe and all of Indian Country will be forever grateful to the Obama administration for this historic decision. We want to thank everyone who played a role in advocating for this cause. We thank the tribal youth who initiated this movement. We thank the millions of people around the globe who expressed support for our cause. We thank the thousands of people who came to the camps to support us and the tens of thousands who donated time, talent, and money to our efforts to stand against this pipeline in the name of protecting our water. We especially thank all of the other tribal nations and jurisdictions who stood in solidarity with us, and we stand ready to stand with you if and when your people are in need. Throughout this effort, I have stressed the importance of acting at all times in a peaceful and prayerful manner, and that is how we will respond to this decision. With this decision, we look forward to being able to return home and spend the winter with our families and loved ones, many of whom have sacrificed as well. We look forward to celebrating in Wopila, in thanks, in the coming days. We hope that Kelsey Warren, Governor Dalrymple, and the incoming Trump administration respect this decision and understand the complex process that led us to this point. When it comes to infrastructure development in Indian country and with respect to treaty lands, we must strive to work together to reach decisions that reflect the multifaceted considerations of tribes. Treaties are paramount law and must be respected, and we welcome dialogue on how to continue to honor that moving forward. We are not opposed to energy independence, economic development, or national security concerns, but we must ensure that these decisions are made with the considerations of our indigenous peoples. To our local law enforcement, I hope that we can work together to heal our relationship as we all work to protect the lives and safety of our people. I recognize the extreme stress that the situation caused and look forward to a future that reflects more mutual understanding and respect. Again, we are deeply appreciative that the Obama administration took the time and effort to genuinely consider the broad spectrum of tribal concerns in a system that has continuously been stacked against us from every angle. It took tremendous courage to take a new approach to our nation-to-nation relationship, and we will be forever grateful. And Senator Sanders put out a statement as well on the Dakota Access Pipeline decision. Quote, I appreciate very much President Obama listening to Native American people and millions of others 
who believe this pipeline should not be built. In the year 2016, we should not continue to trample on Native American sovereignty. We should not endanger the water supply of millions of people. We should not become more dependent on fossil fuel and accelerate the planetary crisis of, an, of climate change. Our job now is to transform our energy system away from fossil fuels, not to produce more greenhouse gas emissions. And from thenation.com, the lesson from Standing Rock, Organizing and Resistance Can Win, by Naomi Klein. Quote, I've never been so happy doing dishes, Ivy Longy says, and then she starts laughing, then crying, and then there is hugging, then more hugging. Less than two hours earlier, news came that the Army Corps of Engineers had turned down the permit for the Dakota Access Pipeline to be built under the Missouri River. The company will have to find an alternate route and undergo a lengthy environmental assessment. Ever since, the network of camps now housing thousands of water protectors has been in the throes of cautious celebration and giving thanks, from cheers to processions to round dances. Here at the family home of Standing Rock Tribal Councilman Cody Two Bears, friends and family members who have been at the center of the struggle are starting to gather for a more private celebration. Which is why the dishes must be done and the soup must be cooked and the FaceTime calls must be made to stalwart supporters from Gasland filmmaker Josh Fox to environmental icon Aaron Brockovich. And the Facebook Live videos must, of course, be made. Hawaii Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard here as part of a delegation of thousands of anti-pipeline veterans, is on her way over. CNN must, of course, be watched, which, to the amazement of everyone here, gives full credit to the water protectors while calling them protesters. The climate movement already knew that mass organizing could get results. We learned it most recently in the Keystone XL fight and the resistance to Shell's Arctic drilling. Victories usually come incrementally, however, and at some delay after mass action. Standing Rock is different. This time the movement was still out on the land in massive numbers when the news came down. The line between resistance and results is bright and undeniable. That kind of victory is rare precisely because it's contagious, because it shows people everywhere that organizing and resistance is not futile. And as Donald Trump moves closer and closer to the White House, that message is very important indeed. The youngest person here is someone many people credit with starting this remarkable movement. 13-year-old Dakota Iron Eyes, a fiercely grounded yet playful water warrior who joined with her friends to spread the word about the threat the pipeline posed to their waters. When I asked her how she felt about the breaking news, she replied, quote, like I got my future back. And then we both broke down in tears. Everyone here is aware that the fight is not over. The company will challenge the decision. Trump will try to reverse it. Quote, the legal path is not yet clear and the need to put financial pressure on the banks invested in the pipeline is more crucial than ever, says Chase Iron Eyes. Nor does today's victory erase the need for justice and restitution 
for the string of shocking human rights violations against the mainly indigenous water protectors. The water cannons, the dog attacks, the hundreds arrested, the grave injuries inflicted by supposedly non-lethal weapons. Still, there is more physical and psychic relief in this room than I've witnessed in my life. As Cody's father, Don Tubear, says when he arrives at the house, it's not over, but it's a good day. And from medium.com, from Bernie Sanders, TPP and Dakota Access Pipeline victories are our blueprint to defeating Trump. In defeating the TPP trade agreement, we had to take on corporate America, the pharmaceutical industry, a majority of Congress, and the President of the United States. In defeating the Dakota Access Pipeline, we had to take on the entire fossil fuel industry and, once again, a majority of Congress. When faced with a strong grassroots movement led by Native American community and environmentalists all across the country, President Obama did the right thing and deserves credit for it. These are lessons that must not be lost as we enter the Trump era. Whether the issues are economic justice, climate change, women's rights, immigration reform, health care, education, campaign finance reform, criminal justice reform, and many other struggles. When we stand together, we can accomplish great victories. This is not a time for despair. It's a time for being smart and going forward in building a strong and victorious grassroots movement. So just as Bernie said during his campaign, it's not he who could have accomplished things, even if elected president. It's the people who would have to move things. It's the people who would have to fight for things. It's the people who would have to demand things. And none of that changes because Bernie wasn't elected or Hillary wasn't elected. None of that made any difference whatsoever. It just means our, our fights will be different. Our fights will be against entities who are much more emboldened to build the things that we may find detrimental to ourselves and our society. But those fights would have gone on nonetheless, regardless of who won. I think the big problem with the Clinton administration, the Bill Clinton administration, was that the left wasn't fighting. The left was afraid to fight. The left, and, and there certainly were many people on the left who did fight. But the masses weren't stirred. The anger wasn't there. A Democrat was in office. So therefore, things would be good. The legislation would be good. It would benefit the people. We find out time after time after time, the legislation passed under Bill Clinton and signed by Bill Clinton 
was terrible legis legislation for the people in numerous different cases. And the, the danger, the added danger of the complacent left in that time allowed for all those things to happen. I think the only benefit of a Republican Congress and president is that the left is much more likely to fight for what we believe in than we were against Obama. We certainly didn't do so in such a vociferous way against Obama and the negative things that Obama supported than we will do against Trump. And as we fight, we need to remember who's on our side and we need to fight in a way that attacks the ideas espoused by people without necessarily attacking the people that espouse the ideas. And it's a tough distinction to make sometimes. And it's Trump is a very easy target for malicious comments as the right found Obama to be. So unless we want to be the left wing version of the Obama-hating uh, contingent. We need to pick our battles and pick our tactics wisely and keep focused on moving forward and not get bogged down into aggressive negativity against people and not against programs and policies and ideas. There are going to be people that oppose us. There have always been people that have opposed us. Varying viewpoints on how things should run are generally healthy. and allow us to have some discourse about the way forward. But if we get stuck attacking individuals and lose sight of fighting for what's right, it's going to distract us and we're going to be less effective on getting where we need to go. And this last piece is largely about that. It is from Time Magazine. It is by Gil Troy. It is called The Bernie Sanders-Fueled Alt-Left Viciously Attacked Me. And I, I have some issues with the title, but knowing that very often the author is not responsible for the title, I'm going to let that slide. I think the title here takes away from 
uh, the overall piece in a significant way. Recently, I wrote that Bernie Sanders' 2016 campaign, like Pat Buchanan's in 1992 insurgency and Ted Kennedy's 1980 rebellion, pushed Hillary Clinton so far to the Democratic Party's extreme left, it became difficult for her to recover votes in the center for the general campaign. I called this one of many reasons why Clinton lost. For having done so, I received hundreds of obscenity-laden tweets, emails, and Facebook posts condemning me, my looks, my suits, my intelligence, my professional judgment, my integrity, my motives, my religion. Some of these messages threatened violence and even mentioned my office address trying to intimidate me. But they were not sent by members of the alt-right, the proudly bigoted conservative movement well known for its anger and trolling. Instead, they came from Sanders supporters, misreading my analysis as an advocacy piece, who felt I'd blamed their hero for Hillary Clinton's failures. Beyond the obscene attacks, I was called a paid shill, an enormous hack with tenure. Tweeters and Facebookers wrote, thanks Time and thanks Gil Troy for being stalwarts of the American Dark Ages. Run back to Palestine. Only a beanie-wearing kike could write something so wrong and misguided. Now I have to vomit. I confess, however, that I laughed when someone said, This guy, Giltroy, is so wrong about stuff, it's amazing he wasn't working for the Clinton campaign. Amid this barrage, I wondered, how could these bullies defend Bernie Sanders' decent campaign so indecently? How does calling me a kike and a greedy Jew help this Jewish politician? And how could they applaud Clinton's ad that showed how Donald Trump's insults about women's looks harmed young girls' body image and then mocked someone's looks? How dare they denounce Trump's boorishness? The supposed enemies of the alt-right were enjoying the same internet-enabled anonymous power rush of their opponents. They shirked responsibility for the words they post, the hate they spew, the democratic dialogue they demean. Their sense of injury trumped all. If Barack Obama's election in 2008 ultimately launched the alt-right, Donald Trump's election in 2016 is launching the alt-left. Despite preaching to Republicans that Trump would have, would have to accept their election results when he lost, these extremists reject the Trump upset as illegitimate. They are the ones who not only took to the streets, but also turned violent in Oakland, California, and Portland. Their fury excuses anything from vandalizing property potentially owned by Trump opponents in those liberal downtowns to rioting, despite not even voting. Of the 108 rioters Portland police arrested, 72 hadn't voted and 36 weren't even registered. Hillary Clinton defined the alt-right as rejecting mainstream conservatism and stewing in prejudice and paranoia. Now, resenting Trump's rise, these Bernie or Bust and never Hillary followers reject mainstream liberalism. They call Clinton a Republican or a neoliberal, their all-purpose epithet for non-conservatives lacking their ideological purity. In many ways, this alt-left matches the alt-right, 
Sure, they differ on policy and live on either side of identity politics. And condemning them equally doesn't mean they're equally dangerous, with the alt-right's Hitlerism and hooliganism spiking since Trump's election. Still, extreme liberalism and conservatism intersect in their economic populism and bullying tactics. They both obsess about Wall Street, the big banks, the mainstream media, and what they see as a dysfunctional federal government. They refuse to learn from the age of Clinton that bipartisan coalitions and centrist policies are possible and often beneficial. They ignore the real causes of middle-class distress, including deindustrialization and the ease of importing now that it's cheaper to transport things across the globe, the benefits of which they, as consumers, enjoy. And for their work, all they will do is strengthen Trump's right as they browbeat their natural, more reasonable allies as neoliberals and keep Trump and his followers feeling attacked, self-righteous, and thus unwilling to temper or compromise. Given the high stakes and self-destructiveness of these attacks, I tried reminding these virtual bullies of who they actually are in real life. I started with one Facebook account. In its first message, the person fumed. Your timepiece in regards to Bernie is a lame attempt at revising history. I've since read a few more of your postings. Your writing is awful. You suck. Retire. The messages kept coming, but each post was less rabid, more substantive. Sensing an opening, I replied I was ignoring the first posting, adding, quote, you seem like a decent person, but your first instinct was to do what most respondents did, bombard me with the ugliness we usually associate with Trump, and which Bernie avoided. Beyond that first belch of insults, we agree more than we disagree. Suddenly, the person behind the internet's camouflage emerged. I'm very, very sorry, he wrote. I actually wish I could take that first response back. Two warm exchanges later, he conceded. Also, you don't suck, and you shouldn't retire. Having cyber-snooped him, I added, enjoy that new baby. He replied with a photo of his newborn and the elegant summation. I second that. I'll tell him about what a good guy Gil Troy is. Teach him not to overreact on social media like I did. And now a person, he signed his message, Matt. I saw how the internet's anonymity and the vehemence within each partisan tunnel demonizes any dissenters. Once we established a person-to-person -person connection, we discovered common ground and changed tone. One interaction does not a revolution make, or for that matter, prove that all people will come around. But it offers a potential template for American healing. As the alt-right and alt-left collide, we must re-engage one another as real people with real concerns, agreeing and disagreeing freely, substantively, respectfully. The American philosopher John Dewey taught, democracy begins in conversation. Restoring the art of real person-to-person -person political conversations will help get our democracy back, reminding decent people whose political sensibilities are offended by critical writers to respond with substantive arguments not demeaning insults, and seek common ground for the common good, not just partisan points to inflame your side. 
So that piece was important, I think, for me to share with all of you because it is often too easy, especially with the vastly expanded communication that the internet provides us and the relative anonymity that that can also provide us for us to be negative and attack people as opposed to challenging ideas. And I think that's where we fail. We will fail if we focus on attacking individuals. I'm reminded of a Hillary Clinton fundraiser during the campaign in which a significant number of protesters were outside vociferously attacking Clinton and the people entering that fundraiser, not with statements against Clinton's policies, but with extraordinarily hateful and negative language on signs and in shouts directed at those people. So I'm going to speak frankly in, I think, the clearest language that I think is appropriate here, and it may not be appropriate for you or any young people you may have listening with you. So if you want to stop now and listen yourself before you might share the rest of this, I'll give you this fair warning. We need to make sure we're not assholes. Every one of us has an inner asshole, and we need to ensure that how we present ourselves to the people with us and to the people against us are not asshole first. If we come out with our asshole blaring, we're going to lose because we're not going to connect. We're, we're going to offend, which offending is not necessarily a bad thing. There are many things that are offensive and there are some things that being offensive in response is not inappropriate. But if we project our assholery at other individuals because we disagree with what they believe in and what they espouse and what they support, we're going to move them nowhere but deeper into their trenches to fight against us. I think of the water protectors in the mass of individuals who fought at Standing Rock. And the core of that struggle was and is prayerful and mindful and thoughtful. And there are certainly assholes involved or people who lead asshole first 
involved in that struggle and supportive of that struggle and present and in some ways instigative of some negativity there from the water protector side of things. But that's not the core. That's not the vast majority of the people who are there and who are standing strong and fighting for what they believed in and fighting the idea and fighting the reality of the potential threat to their land and their water. And if all those people did was come out and be negative and deride and detract from the other side in a personal way, the Obama administration would not have listened. The Obama administration hardly listened, hardly gave any positive encouragement to those water protectors as it was outside of coming to a conclusion that a specific permit would not be granted at this point in time. The Obama administration said very little about that struggle and was not supportive as Hillary Clinton said very little and was not supportive of that struggle. Had they had the water protectors in their core been assholes and 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 fought this struggle asshole first, they would never have gotten the reprieve that they currently have. And same with the TPP. Millions of people here and around the world fought against the TPP. And it wasn't Hillary Clinton's lukewarm opposition that made any difference, nor was it Donald Trump's opposition that made any difference. It was millions of people fighting with facts and struggling in a way that brought those millions of people together. If that struggle had been about demeaning the people who support the TPP, and that was the goal and that was the purpose, millions of people would not have joined together. Hundreds of thousands of people would be turned off and would stand on the sidelines or potentially even support the other side and said, you're being unreasonable, therefore your position must be weak. So we need to be extremely mindful about how we fight. And that does not mean we don't fight fiercely and don't fight strongly and don't use strong language and don't, you know, admit that there are assholes everywhere and how well we control that will impact how successful we will be. There are a lot of fights ahead of us And if we do them well and do them right and use a variety of strategies and be thoughtful as we fight these battles, 
we will have a higher chance of success. And that will wrap up the first episode of Bernie 2020. And going out appropriately, we will hear the song Assholes on Parade by Timbuk3. Timbuk3 was an amazing group since disbanded. You may know them by their huge hit, The Future's So Bright, I Gotta Wear Shades. But they had a lot of very outstanding political music. Uh, the album, Prey, P-R-E-Y in particular, also Big Shot in the Dark, has some really strong statements to make. Uh, but this this piece is Assholes on Parade. This is again, by Timbuk3. It is found on the album Field Guide, Some of the Best of Timbuk3. Don't forget, you can reach out to me, send me a message at BernieUS2020 at gmail.com or follow me on Twitter at BernieUS2020. Thanks for listening. Celebration, and they're all out on the street. See them on the sidewalk, oh, hear them shuffling feet. That's 20,000 assholes doing asshole promenade. Step aside, good people, it's the assholes on parade. Got the assholes for freedom, the assholes for fun, the assholes for Jesus, the assholes for guns, assholes for justice, assholes for crime, assholes for assholes, assholes for all time. Making money, they're making all the rules, they're taking all our jobs, and they're filling up our schools. Assholes on the water, assholes in the sky, the sign that says help wanted, only assholes need a fly. Give the orders, and assholes roll the boat. 
assholes get elected, cause assholes get to vote. I once heard it said that old assholes never die. They just lay in bed and multiply. Assholes in the morning, assholes every night, assholes to the left and 